This is RipperCast, episode 47, The Non-Canonical Victims, part 2. Joining the show today from Ramsgate, Kent, in the UK, is Chris Scott. From London, England, in the UK, is John Bennett. And from Pensers, Kent, in the UK, is Ben Holm. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from San Diego, California, and you are joining the discussion already in progress. Predated any actual attacks? Well, that um, was what I mean, AP Wolf was very good that time. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, last the time he was coming up with all these little things, you know. Well, he's yeah, he's, he's dug up loads of sort of um, ones that are sort of tangentially might be related, but, you know, things like arson cases and um, another one which apparently is is comparatively common, but uh, because of the sensibilities of the Victorians or lack of, from our point of view, probably wouldn't have been reported, would have been um, offences against animals, you know, torturing yeah. and um, mm. even killing animals. But, uh, I mean, that, that sort of thing, unless it was really gross, I don't think that sort of thing would, would have been reported much. I certainly haven't yeah. seen many newspaper reports because but i mean if you take somebody like jeffrey dahmer i mean that was he followed that classic route into into killing i mean yeah, he, he did uh, arthur shawcross as well i mean you know he was right. animals and also things like um uh, starting fires you know lots of kind of arson and sort of exactly he also mentioned about sort of how they might start off in childhood uh possible physical or maybe psychological abuse of family members and things like that yeah. that was another yeah. thing he brought up as well yeah yeah it seems to run as a, a theme with other serial killers you know sort of mm. uh, arthur shortcross and also uh, more recently uh, captured serial killers like uh, robert napper you know yeah. he was the subject of abuse which he sort of then sort of dished out himself mm-hmm. uh, when he became the abuse so um, do we think that those those same uh, whatever um, Ali referred to them as like the three pillars of serial killing or something like that, or the, mm. the uh, arsons, the animal abuse, and uh, I don't know what what the third one was. Maybe one <laughs> do you think that those guy that those um, same traits uh, can be applied to uh, a serial murderer in the late Victorian period? That we would find that kind of commonality between 20th century serial killers as far as the animal abuse and the arsons and, and um, simple assaults or thefts or stuff like that? Well, I think, yeah, do, we, I think, do we assume that the, the, the brain, the basic human brain, works differently now than it did 100 years ago? But it's, my answer would be no. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I don't really think there are any considerable difference, differences, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not in 120 years, but it, it goes back to the old nature versus nurture thing. You know, do, does yeah. d- uh, does the archetypal, if there is such a thing, a serial killer follow that pattern or, or any any blueprint like that? I think it has to be treated extremely cautiously because there are always exceptions. But, you know, does does a serial killer um, of the archetypal variety follow that because... Um, there's something in the human brain which leads him or her rarely inexorably into those paths or because they are the easiest social options within our present setup. Mm. I mean, if I, if I remember rightly, um, in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer, for example, his first um, experience of um, actually dissecting, because it was already dead, actually dissecting and becoming um, unhealthily interested in animal physiology was due to roadkill. Because of you know where he lived and and 
it was in a fairly remote rural community and there was a lot of roadkill about so you know so his his interest started off not not through actually killing animals initially it was because as i said he he had this rather unhealthy interest in the in the workings of the of the the, the animal body whether whether it had sexual connotations or not i don't know but um i, I I, I certainly don't, I mean, you know, basic human nature and the way the brain works certainly hasn't changed in noticeably no. in 120 years. Exactly. But do we think that, that maybe with the animal abuse or, or uh, you know, animal mutilations and stuff that some serial kill, modern-day serial killers had practiced um, as children or whatever, do we think that maybe some of that has to do with the role of, of animals in society? I mean, I, I don't know how else to put it, but the... But the um, domestic animals pets cats and dogs and things that serial killers would torture you know hold hold a more important place in the family and in in in, in yeah. a society than they might have in the east end in 1888 where i assumed there were stray dogs and cats running around all over the place and maybe so I, I so i'm wondering if the the mentality of the modern day serial killers and, and their cruelty to animals is is more of a product of them um, being cruel, you know, to something that's you know, um, you know, a lovable, lovable family close pet. to the right. Yeah, it ha- has more si- sim- symbolic significance than someone experimenting with an- you know, or torturing animals and stuff. Maybe in the late Victorian mm-hmm. period, the late Victorian period. Rats, perhaps, you know, that could be the equivalent, sort of, in, in a kitchen, if you're sort of working in a kitchen, a sort of doss house kitchen, you know, bashing the odd rat that would sort of uh, <laughs> certainly proliferate the district back then. Um, I mean, they could be considered equivalent. I know sort of on the old ships, you know, they used to sort yeah. of, uh, firemen, stokers used to love sort of electrocuting rats and that kind of stuff. So that was, uh, they, yeah. if they sort of maybe derive some sort of sadistic pleasure from that. Mm. Um, Tor- torturing, the fam- torturing the family cat is quite different to, you know, burning ants with a magnifying glass. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, that sort of thing, or, you know, squashing per- a pers- slug. I, 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 would, I would think personally that the, the reasoning would be much more practical than, you know, any sort of, like, psychological symbolism, which was that, that you know, when, when the person of this uh, mindset became either uh, directly or indirectly interested in the, in the psychology of, of pain and even leading on to the psychology of the taking of life, that, that uh, inflicting that on animals was, uh, was a much easier uh, and a much more practical and also a much less dangerous in terms of the police and being caught than actually starting experimenting on fellow humans. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I think the opportunity that, yeah. for that exists then and now, I think. I mean, you're, there's always going to be um, possible exposure to, to sort of these, you know, early sort of pre-crime stimuli if you like you know i mean killing animals i mean i think the bottom line is there are opportunities to do that um you know both in the modern day and and then mm. Mm. But, but, but again i have to stress going back to what i said a few minutes ago i think you know we we've we've got to take these um these sort of quasi uh, psychological backgrounds you know painted with very broad strokes with with uh, more than a pinch of salt, because you know, for everyone you can quote, like Dharma and and others, there there are you know there are exceptions. I mean, there, there certainly there are uh, serial killers who, as far as we 
as far as we are aware, never went through any of these stages. Mm. That's true. So, uh, they'd be in the rather conspicuous minority, but it's certainly, I mean, it, it, there's certainly no kind of, you know, one-size-fits-all exactly. sort of mentality. I think exactly. on the basis of probability, I think uh, it's very unlikely, for example, that um, uh, Nichols was the first, for example. I mean, that would be too much like, um, as Ali cautioned uh, against in the, in the early podcast, going from naught to 60 straight away in terms of criminal activity. Um, invariably, yeah. they start off on a kind of smaller scale, yeah. um, and very often the kind of the earliest crime scenes will bear little to no resemblance to their later ones. Um, yes, and so for that re- reason, I would be um, very inclined to consider people like Tabram and uh, Ada Wilson and, uh, and Annie Millwood as as, as fairly yeah. viable candidates. Um, yeah, unproven. Mm. I, think one thing, one, yeah, I think one thing we mentioned last time and, uh, was that you know serial killers are not robots. They do not no. do exactly the same thing every time, you know, and maybe in the same way they do not all be formed in the same way mm. every time, you know. So it's, it's a bit more wide open than just saying all serial killers, you know, find their, their way of work, their MO, and just stick with it. So you know well, exactly. that every time that happens, that's him, you know, or her, whatever. Yeah, that's, 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 that, that's what I was cautioning because, I mean, that, mm. you know, they are, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pleading any kind of, uh, you know, uh, anything on their behalf. When I say they're all individuals, but obviously they all they all come from different places. I mean, if you take two people like, um, say, Ted Bundy and Ed Gein, I mean, I don't think you could have two more different people. Absolutely um, and, right. They're both classed as serial killers. I mean, Ted Bundy broke most of the rules anyway. That you know, I mean, uh, I mean, there's there, then seen as rules like you know a lot of a lot of. Um, a lot of serial killers found it difficult to hold down a relationship. They were socially inept. They were loners and all that. And, of course, he broke all those rules. You know, he was good-looking. He was com- accomplished. He was charming. How, mm. how, how much you see that is skin deep, and it might just have been an act. And he was, you know, I think, so, I think a lot of people would still think that he was actually a sociopath and that these apparently, you know, charming traits were just, you know, so many tricks in his, in his armory. And, and, and uh, uh, Peter Sutcliffe. Go ahead, oh, John. Sorry. Oh, Peter Sutcliffe. I mean, I, I don't, not too sure on this. I don't know if he had a, in his childhood. I know he was supposed to be quite quiet or whatever. But like you say, he he got married, and I know they didn't have children or anything like that. But you know, he was he was able to socially integrate enough to marry, for example, mm-hmm. things like that. But um, I don't think I've heard of any stories about Peter Sutcliffe, you know, torturing animals or anything like that no, when he was young. No, I might be wrong. I might no. be wrong. I've, from from what I remember, uh, he was um, he was odd as a child, and he was. I mean, this is always with the benefit of hindsight. And he was he was certainly withdrawn and inter- introverted. And also, you know, one has to say that his marriage to Sonia was in itself pretty odd. I mean, yeah. they were. I mean, she, she was. You know, I have to be fairly careful what I say because she's still around. Well, so so he come to that. But uh, I mean, they they were certainly an odd couple. Mm. I mean, but when you get the dynamics, I know that she wasn't involved, but I mean, uh, one that I find even more sinister is when you get this, so, the so-called folie deux, you know, when you get sort of a couple like Fred and Rosemary West. You know, I mean, that mm. trying to get inside that relationship just really does your head in. Mm. I mean, it, it's so, it's bad enough when you're trying to get some inkling into the psychology of somebody who thank god is so alien to the vast majority of us but when you try to get into the dynamics of how a relationship like that could work it, it completely baffles me 
Yeah. And they come up with excuses. For example, um, um, person A wouldn't have committed this, these kind of murders unless they met person B. That sort mm. of uh, mentality comes yeah. into it. Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. would they have been as dangerous in isolation? Um, probably not. Um, mm. And there's also the kind of um, organized versus disorganized model. Um, you know, yes. for example, it's, it's a little bit fallacious now in light of what we've learned about other serial killers, but certainly people like Ed Gain and Albert Fish, they'd be uh, the classically sort of disorganized type of offenders yes. who, yeah. you know, the sort of quintessential um, animal abusers in childhood. Whereas um, yes. maybe uh, Ted Bundy would sort of fit the organized model a bit more. And as Chris was saying earlier about Ted Bundy being able, to, you know, how much of of his um, charm and and professionalism and all that was was a facade. <clears throat> that reminds me of the comment that the BTK killer made. Uh, Dennis Rader claimed that he um, den- that the Dennis Rader um, portion of his of his mind, the family man, the churchgoer. Um, and all that was the fake Dennis Rader. He was BTK. False persona was the uh, upstanding member of society and all yeah. that stuff, and the normal yeah. everyday middle class guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I don't know if BTK had a history of animal abuse in his past, but he yeah. was an animal control officer for a while, and yeah. he seemed to derive pleasure from tormenting the um, owners of animals um, mm. in the Wichita area. He, he would, um, uh, people believe that he would purposefully let dogs loose um, in order to capture them and put them in the pound. And I think in a couple cases, these pets were euthanized. He had several complaints filed against him by um, homeowners in the, in the Park City and Wichita, Kansas area of him uh, just harassing them about their, their pets. And this mm. would have been um, things that he was doing concurrently with him being the BTK. You know, it was his, mm. uh, one of his day jobs. Um, <laughs> vicariously experiencing sort of sadism in a way. Um, for example, another interesting one recently in this country is Levi Belfield, who was a wheel clamper and sort of took rather apparently sadistic pleasure in sort of clamping, clamping cars. You know, it's a sort of... Mm. It's a kind of means by which to kind of vicariously experience, you know, destru- you know destruction and kind of sadism in a way. Mm. Yes, yeah. And, con- and control, perhaps, as and well. control, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I mean, mentioning Bundy again, because another one who always uh, sort of um, uh, this, you know, accomplished, um, articulate, um, I, think he was, uh, I think he was a law practitioner at one stage, and obviously intelligent. But uh, I think also the... The the thing that I, comes to me overwhelmingly with Bundy is is the word manipulative, and I think some of, some of, some killers actually manipulate their own image, and they actually use that as a fallback. And I think the one that did that sort of with a, an alarming success was probably John Gacy because he, you know, he befriended the the local police force. He was this supposedly very respectable um, middle class or lower middle class businessman. He was a pillar of the community. He was in the local Rotarians or whatever the American equivalent is, and I think he and, and he was a kids entertainer with those awfully sinister uh, photographs of him as a clown. Yeah. And I think all, all that thing, you know, is is mm. in retrospect is chilling, but you can see at the time why people would have found it so hard to you know equate the two people, Gacy the killer and Gacy the model citizen. 
Mm. I think they do well, we enjoy a... conveying a false image of themselves, you know, especially to the police. Oh yeah. You know. yeah this 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 country also, you know, over over this side of the pond, folks. Um, you know, Christie. Yeah. Is a good example. You know, put himself across as, you know, I'm ex-military, I'm an ex-doctor, I have medical training, da 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 and he could, and he, you know, and he, well, he was a special anybody. Con- he was a special constable, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he sort of used that as a, you know, means and an end to do things. And yeah. I presume, you know, you had poor old Timothy Evans, mm. um, you know, and the rest is history, that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, there's yeah. an amount of times you hear where he sort of managed to convince various people that, there's nothing wrong, you know. And to, to touch was- on um, one more thing that AP Wolf said last time, uh, and this is, and it's kind of evident in this conversation, is that most of the serial killers we're mentioning here are middle class individuals. And when we think about the Whitechapel murder, uh, a lot of people will think that it would have been a working class individual, someone who is familiar with the neighborhood and um, you know lived in and around East End. But yet, because he was never caught, I mean, it's it, it uh, you know we'll probably never know what what uh, class mm-hmm. background um, the Ripper had. In terms of the majority, that you you'd be fair to say that the majority come from a working class background. Uh, and especially when you're looking at a sort of very closely clustered uh, serials uh, mm. in which the majority population are working class, that would tend to um, convey a stronger probability of a, of a working class offender in this case. I mean, I also get the impression that um, the term middle class uh, has slightly different connotations in the US uh, and the UK. Mm. I just mm. get the impression, for example, I, I wouldn't personally call... Um, Christie middle class. Um, no. You know, when I, when I think of a middle, middle class person, sort of, you know, just in my mind's eye, I've got a sort of Seven Oaks commuter driving a Land Rover and <laughs> has a swimming pool, that sort of thing. Whereas um, yeah. very few um, uh, serial killers fit that model. I mean, mm. um, so, um, they, they may, they may um, become better themselves, they may better themselves uh, over the course mm. of their life, lifetime, but in terms of their actual roots, um, Invariably, it's, it's it's a working class background. Mm. I think also um, within the UK, I think within the UK, the, you know, the use of the terms working class and middle class have certainly changed from the time of the Whitechapel murders up until now. That's very true. Mm. Mm. So yeah. I think you know, e- e- even within one culture, you've got to be a bit careful. I mean, you know, some I mean, some people would argue that within modern Britain, that the term working class is is virtually sense because i mean manufacturing industry and heavy industry is pretty much gone which is pretty mm. much what it was based on you know it's like the the old difference between blue collar and white collar and that the all the heavy industry you know i mean if you were working class there were certain uh extremes you know if you were like all, like all my, my all my folks were i mean my father and, and all his family came from durham and they were all miners so i mean that's the sort of background so uh, you know so if you were a miner or if you were a steel worker then obviously you were very definitely working class if you were a doctor you were definitely middle class but there were very very gray shades in between in the yeah. day would you have considered fred and rose west working class or middle class yes yes oh, working work, class. class oh yes but now, in the UK, looking at some US murders, would you have considered uh, Gary Ridgway working class? Or, yes. And, and also, yes. Dennis Rader would be considered working class? Sort of. 
I guess so. He he would be sort of, I guess, I mean, upper working class. Would if if there's yeah, a yeah. right. There is this. Yeah, there's a gray area between like lower middle class yes. and That's working right. class. Um, Dennis Rader lived in a suburb of Wichita, Park City, which is kind of a, what what I would consider a middle class suburb. Um, yeah. Whereas uh, a killer like Henry Lee Lucas um, would be uh, considered working class. Very. Um, so yeah, there, maybe there is a, the, a little slight mm. difference um, in U, mm. the UK and the US interpretation of. I, I, I think the, the in as far as a, a class structure still exists in the UK, which I, personally I think it does. I think it's now based on very different criteria, to, certainly to what it was 120 years ago, because mm-hmm. then it was prime it was primarily based on either your. Uh, what would have been called breeding, your, in other words, your, your, your um, social background, or, or what you did as a job. But I think now it's much now that all the boundaries have got much more blurred. You can't base it on wealth because you've got people like Premier League footballers and wags and, and all this stuff. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's I think to a large extent. I mean, if if you look at a say a politically. I think you see it at its most um, blatant. It, the one area where it is, is, is in politics. If you see any of the uh, political discussion programs, say, about Prime Minister's Question Time, you will still hear comments about David Cameron, you know, the leader of the opposition, and people are, oh, well, he's wary of him because he's an old Etonian and he's a toff. They even use the word. You know, I've heard Cameron described as a toff. Or uh, people like Boris Johnson the mayor of London, who's seen as, by a lot of people, as a sort of amiable upper-class eccentric. You know, do, do we want yeah. one of the world's major metropolises represented by what a lot of people see as a buffoon? But, you know, all, I think all the criteria for putting people into these convenient slots has, has got very blurred. And I think it's based now on more like um, social habits, possibly accent still to some extent, but I think less so. But it's, it's much harder to say, you know, is David Beckham working class? Is David Beckham middle class? Um, he has working all- class roots and, uh, you know, as opposed to sort of, you yeah. know, making a generic sort of statement, working class, middle class, you, you perhaps say, this person comes from a working class background. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, there's a bit of kind of specificity in, uh, involved yeah. now. Just because go, there's something blurred. Sorry. Go on. I was just going to say, going back to what we were saying about the Whitechapel uh, killer, again, there was this, um, a lot of people say, um, a lot of people make that that leap from saying that he's a local man, which is normally based on the idea that he had detailed local knowledge. Uh, and the and the the intellectual leap then is he was a local man, ergo, he must have been lower class, as though there were no sort of middle class or no successful long-established businesses and no business people in the Whitechapel area. But, you know, I think we have to be wary with that because, you know, uh, the whole of Whitechapel was not um, very seedy, run-down DOS houses. No. Although, obviously, no, there's a, there there's were... A thing I've, so, yeah, there's a thing... Yeah, like that, there's a thing I've noticed, um, like when you watch documentaries for about the last ten years, they really do, like all the books do, they focus on how um, bad and awful... Whitechapel and Spitalfields exactly. were, and they. So the last one I yeah. saw, which was made about two years ago, says, "You know, mm. where life was cheap and uh, yeah. Yeah. life expectancy was thirty, less than thirty, yeah. and it makes it yeah. out to be this rat run where people were vomiting in the street constantly, yeah. 
and you know if you walk down a side street you were going to die and it's mm. really built that up but um mm. okay it's very easy to go back to say like the booth maps for example all the main mm. roads are red which is yeah. well to do yeah um you know they, they the business owners the shop owners mm. um mm. the respectable types and and how many of us live in an yeah. area where you know, you live in a nice little side street or something like that, or in a yeah. cul-de-sac or a nice street, yeah. and then there's a, an estate round the corner, which is like, oh, mm. we'll go down there at night. There's, it's, you're yeah. going to have that. Right. But yeah, this I idea yeah, I think what a, lo- a local Whitechapel man or, or a local Whitechapel person is going to be mm. rough, and it mm. probably, and it still isn't like that. There, you mm. know, it's, um, it'll always change. But one, it's, of the, um, one of the points I think A.P. Wolf was trying to make was that depending on the, the economic class of the Ripper, especially as a younger man and as a child, it would have had an effect on what kind of crimes he may have been busted for um, early on. What what kind of... Um, when, I mean, when we were talking about, you know, petty theft and simple mm-hmm. assaults and street crimes, running with a gang in the, in the case of Elizabeth... Um, in the case of um, Emma Elizabeth Smith's attack... Mm-hmm. Um, um, AP was kind of trying to make the point. Well, well, yes, maybe he would have been involved in to- those types of, of things if he was of the lower working class. Um, mm. But if he wasn't, <clears throat> and and of course, AP, you know, might would have said if, if his father was on the police force, let's say, for example, mm. Mm. then he may not have been bu- um, bun- how do you say bummed up for the crimes or. Um, <laughs> He may, may not have been uh, charged for uh, some of his earlier crimes or, or, or you know, never really or, – or, you know, or his uh, pre, mm. um, pre-Ripper uh, activity, criminal activities, <clears throat> mm. wouldn't necessarily have been the same kind as, as the ones from someone who's from uh, the, mm. the streets of the East End, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd say it's, it's certainly worth um, reinforcing that the majority um, population would have been um, would have been working class. I mean, certainly there were there, there were sort of uh, red hotspots where you had the people like sort of you know the, the grocers, the McCarthy's, and uh, all the yeah, rest of it who yeah, were certainly yeah, sort of yeah. respectable uh, working class yeah. business. Yeah, exactly. Um, but all, but working the, class, the vast, nonetheless. Yeah, oh, working class, agree. nonetheless. Absolutely. I think once once you once you get uh, once you get the presence of uh, one of the especially the larger notorious um, lodging houses. I mean, if you take Dorset Street itself, which was uh, which was and has become you know one of the most notorious streets. Um, you know all these stories about you know policemen didn't dare go down there and all this stuff. <laughs> if you act, if you actually look at the um, well, and I did a, a similar exercise to this when I wrote the Kelly book. If you just take a head count of, let's say, the 1891 census or the 1881 census, then the, certainly the majority of people who were living in Dorset Street were transients uh, because they had these – and the enormous number of people some of these uh, lodging houses could put up was just absolutely mind-bending. I mean, you think, how the hell did they get them all in there? You know, two to three hundred in you know in one lodging house. Okay, the lodging houses may have extended over two or three properties, but when you do it in terms of actual properties, because the the lodging houses pack them in like sardines up to the gunnels, and so that you know that really skewed the figures in terms of you you might say you know x percentage of the residents of um, Dawson Street were transients living in um, in in lodging houses. But if you take it actually in number of terms of properties. 
it meant that there were a significant number of of fairly long-term established businesses you know even in dorset street it it wasn't it wasn't wall-to-wall uh you know rat infested um lodging houses there were uh, like the mccarthy's i mean you know and there were others so i think it's very easy to get this 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 skewed picture as though the whole uh district was this sort of festering rat hole yeah you know which people entered at their peril as <coughs> well so you mentioned about this the dos houses sort of you know packing in more people than oh, they were God, yeah. regis- registered for there's yeah. on wentworth wentworth street near the junction of the old george yard there's a building called yeah. universal house which used to be wildermuth's lodging house mm. and the 1901 census for that lodging house it has about 800 people on it it's unbelievable uh, yeah it's uh, how they've packed it's them in it's the same building yeah. now it's been a bit modernized but it's the yeah. same one and i, I yeah. tell people about this and they can't believe yeah. it that they packed them in that much oh, i yeah. don't know how many people it was actually licensed for no but um i think i think the other thing which I think the other thing which is possibly worth remembering in the sort of social background and how maybe the Ripper fitted in with this, because again I mentioned this in the Kelly book, is that even those people who were living in um, in lodging houses, even in Dorset Street, you know, which was supposed to be this, you know, the most benighted street in the area, you know, if you, even if you look at the background of the victims that we have, what what, what is striking really is is how long term some of these people were. I mean, some people lived in. Mm either lived in lodging houses for months or even years at a time or they had a small sort of circuit of lodging houses and they moved from one to t'other and they were very well known and you know the well, other catherine, people in the the other people catherine, in the lodging houses if effectively were their neighbors well catherine eddowes for example and john kelly met at um 55 flower and dean street in 1881 yeah. or something like that and, and they yeah. were there for seven years you know so exactly. so you know they effectively they were long-term residents even though it yeah. was te- technically a you know well i say technically it was a lodging house and they would yeah. have paid their 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 um you know their four pence or eight pence they would have paid it presumably nightly or weekly or whatever mm. yeah so, you know, I think, you know, to see the, the Ripper as a sort of, you know, wild-eyed transient who used the odd uh, lodging, lodging house as a bolt hole, mm. you know, that, that, that wasn't the only sort of people that were about. Yeah. Now, before we go Stop. into the, uh, the second part of our podcast proper, Ben, is, I know um, there, there were a couple more items that you would like to comment on of things that were mentioned in the earlier podcasts. Okay. Well, um... A quick observation, if I may, then, about um, Ada Wilson. Um, it's generally accepted that her attacker came to her door and demanded money, uh, claiming he'd kill her if she didn't comply. Um, but an account attributed to her neighbor, one Rose Beerman, described as a Jewess, um, suggested a slightly different version of events. Uh, in this account, Ada actually uh, brought the man home, who then attacked her once inside the dwelling. Now, on balance, I'm inclined to go with the Beerman version, um, which may imply that Wilson perhaps altered a few details of her, of her account to conceal the fact that she dabbled in prostitution. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind that she was described as a seamstress, which is often a, a euphemism for prostitute. I mean, it's yeah. just speculation on my part, but I, it, it's an explanation that would kind of reconcile the differences between the two accounts. 
Um, mm. It's just mm. kind of generally accepted that uh, Ada Wilson's version is the correct one, but um, but but Rose, Rosa Bierman's account is is little little known and certainly worth bearing in mind. There's one thing I've just spotted spotted here. Um, I've got it up on the screen now. Um, <laughs> Ada Wilson. Uh, this is from Rose Bierman. Eastern Post and City, City Chronicle. Ada Wilson, the injured woman, is the occupier of the house, but at the time of the outrage, she was under notice to quit. Um, exactly. That's very interesting. What was the address? No, where, where, was she, where, where was she living at the time? Uh, it was Maidman Street. Maidman Street. Maidman yeah. Street, that's right. I couldn't, I couldn't remember, yeah. Just and on Third End Road in Mile End yeah, Tube Station. I, yeah. and I have that's nine, right. possibly 19... Maidman Street. Um, that that um, account that Ben related kind of has shades um, in the account of Annie Farmer's attack as well. Although mm. Annie Farmer um, yeah. went ahead and admitted that she was a prostitute. Mm. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll discuss uh, that here in a minute, but let's get started um, proper. Uh, I did write See, an introduction. Jonathan, yes, Jonathan yes, have, you been, have you been recording all that? Yeah, Good. I, I started recording oh. it. Um, uh, it's been recording for about thirty-three minutes. Yeah. So I got all, like. that, all I got all that stuff. Uh, yeah. And um, and so I'll go ahead and um, do the um, the proper introduction to this episode. What you are listening to is the second part of our two-part podcast, looking at assaults and murders of women in the East End of London, and we'll also discuss a murder in New York City. That are not popularly attributed to, to Jack the Ripper, but some of these acts are debatable as to whether or not they should be included in the Ripper's tally of victims. The first part covered those attacks that preceded that of Marianne Nichols, and so this part will pick up on the instances of murders and assaults, some of which ran concurrently with the Autumn of Terror attacks and those that took place after the murder of Mary Kelly. <clears throat> the uh, first assault I would like us to discuss is that uh, upon Susan Ward, which occurred on Saturday, the 15th of September, 1888. Susan Ward was a prostitute who claimed to have been attacked as uh, she turned off commercial... Well, actually, this uh, I shouldn't say that. What, what happened is, is basically the Daily Telegraph carried a report on an unnamed prostitute that was attacked. Mm. Ten days... Uh, roughly 10 days before the murder of Annie Chapman. And um, the Daily Telegraph described the injuries uh, that were inflicted on this this particular woman. And um, trawling through the uh, London hospital records, the only person to have injuries that matched those described in the Daily Telegraph was Susan Ward. So the press at the time never named Susan Ward. It's subsequent researchers who have attached her name to uh, this account of, of an assault. Um, but nevertheless, um, this, this prostitute, which for lack of more information we'll just call Susan Ward, was, um, was turning off Commercial Road and uh, was, uh, a man came up to her and attempted to trip her to the ground. And he had a knife and he attempted to slash her throat and apparently she held up her arm and started to scream, and so a wound was inflicted on her arm, and her screams apparently startled her attacker away. And um, she was admitted to the London hospital and survived. There's not many uh, 
more specific reports on this attack. And like I said in the original press reports, she's never named. But it's, it's an attack that some might consider to be an unsuccessful attack by Jack the Ripper. What are any of your opinions on the attack on Susan Ward? I think, I think as with the others, it's, uh, you, can't, you can't rule it out. Uh, unfortunately, in this case, there's just such a dearth of information um, in contrast to, say, Ada Wilson and Annie Millwood. So, uh, you know, we're not uh, sure of the woman's identity. Um, you know, but, but if, if, it, if it occurred as described, then, um, then there's absolutely no reason for dismissing it uh, on the grounds, as some people do, that it's, oh, it's too different and, uh, and you know, the Jack the Ripper slashed and couldn't possibly stab arms, that sort of stuff. Um, um, but again, we, we, in this case, we just suffer from a lack of information. Right, let yeah. me read the account, that one of the accounts that was in the Daily Telegraph. It says... There is reason to believe that the monster of whom policemen and vigilants are so eagerly but fruitlessly in quest attempted another outrage upon a woman of loose conduct sometime between the date of Annie Chapman's murder and last Sunday morning. As we are informed, the Metropolitan Police have for several days past been in possession of every detail of this woman's startling narrative, a full account of which will be found in another column. Here we will merely observe that she was admitted ten days ago to a London hospital in which a serious cut on her arm was treated, and that she has solemnly declared that she received the injury in question whilst protecting her throat from an attempt made to cut it by a man who, having engaged her in conversation and struck an immoral bargain with her, tripped her up, threw her heavily onto the pavement, and attacked her, knife in hand, with murderous intent." So those are some of the details that oh. Susan Ward gave of her assault. Um, apparently, she was too drunk to give a description of her attacker. Mm. But some would argue that the date, if it didn't in fact incur, occur on Saturday, the 15th of September, it fits with the Ripper attacking sometimes on the weekends. And um, But there was no strangulation involved. It just involved tripping. And I believe that in other cases, for instance, Liz Stride, um, there, although, although her her um, scarf was pulled tightly around her throat, there's if Liz Stride was a Ripper victim, then it did s- seem like maybe there was a, some some attempt to, to trip her onto the ground. And I know that tripping the victims has been mentioned before by some people as a, as a mm. possibility. Um, as a means to, uh, as the first uh, strike uh, of his assault. Mm. So some would say that it, that it might fit the pattern of Jack the Ripper attack, and then, um, but then others, um, because of the lack of strangulation, um, discount it. Well, it fits. It it fits if you sort of come up with the idea that you know, like I said before, serial killers are not robots. And things like that is mm. sort of often bodged attempts or whatever. But if you stick to the idea that oh no, he must sever the left carotid artery and then, or strangle them first, then sever the artery, then it doesn't seem to work, does it? I think the, the, there, are, you know, the, the the more you go on, I mean, this may be an early one, but I think that the problem is in trying to sort of cherry pick these attacks and say, you know, are they more or less likely to be? Uh, the Whitechapel killer is is as you go on into the the series and and the aftermath is the sheer number of them 
including domestics. But I mean, if you if you know if you if you do a search on the the word Whitechapel over a certain period, what what surprised me was how often it comes up as a verb. And you know, there's 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 a large number of um, of uh, cases where of reports of men attacking women and threatening to quote Whitechapel them. Mm. And, you know, it became a verb, and yeah. um, and it, it was it was quite a common threat. And I've or, heard of or people I've, saying, um, "I'll cut you up in the Whitechapel manner." That's right. But I've yeah. seen quite a few where Whitechapel is just used as a verb. You know, if you you know if you don't shut up, I'll Whitechapel you. <laughs> and then yeah. another another one is oh, uh, and he threatened to treat her as the Ripper did, mm. and you know to right. to a lot of there's quite a few accounts where men are actually threatening. Not they're not saying they are the Ripper, but they're treating uh, you know women in a certain way in an abusive way, and and um, you know liken overtly likening their behaviour to the Ripper. Now, so you know, yeah. Although um, Susan Ward's um, case is is. Um, is not included in the the official tally of Whitechapel murders. Um, mm. Her her file is included in the in the 140, I believe it is, um, the uh, Scotland Yard file on the Whitechapel murders. It, it's mm. it's in, so for some reason the police or whoever compiled these things did did feel the need to slip Susan Ward's um, assault in, I believe right right next to Martha Tabram's. Um, in 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 the um, Scotland Yard murder file mm-hmm. on the Whitechapel yeah. murder, so that's that's kind yeah. of interesting. But again, I, th- I think you could uh, possibly explain that also in terms of that it actually happened uh, so co- comparatively early into the the canonical five series. I mean, if it if it followed closely on the heels of the Chapman murder, uh, then you know the the full blown series had not yet developed. And so presumably at that stage they were trying to collate any possible likely-looking lead that could lead, you know, to an an apparently unprovoked attack on a woman of a certain class. Right, right. We're all familiar with, uh, uh, in this case, uh, people coming forward claiming to be Jack the Ripper um, just off the streets, but uh, very rarely do we see a woman claim to be a victim of Jack the Ripper. And that was the case of Annie Farmer. Annie Farmer claimed to have been attacked on Tuesday, the 20th of November, 1888. And um, apparently the circumstances of, of her attack was that she had um, she was a prostitute who took a man back to her lodging house at 19 George Street. And uh, hours later, she let out a terrible scream and appeared late, uh, bleeding from a wound to her throat. And she had claimed a man that attacked a man had attacked her and ran from the house, and he and uh, she gave a, a full description of the man uh, as thirty six, five feet six inches tall, dark complexion, black mustache, shabby genteel suit, and round black felt hat. The knife used in this assault was considered a blunt blade. Then, as the police further investigated it, they had discovered that um, Annie Farmer was concealing coins in her mouth that maybe that her intention was that that she was robbing her client mm. and and then claimed that that he was Jack the Ripper in order mm. to pull off a robbery there's also that that sto- the, the little bit in the in the in the eye um in the account where it says the the man as he passed to Cokeman in mm. Thrall Street he said what a blank i don't know what the original word was cow mm. You know, as if mm. to say, you know, she's ripped me off or yeah. whatever. It's, if, you, if you're going to do a murder, 
or you're going to attempt to murder, you're hardly going to sort of walk past a couple of blokes and say, cool, blimey, you know, she's hard going, or whatever it is, you're not going to sort of put, bring attention to yourself, perhaps. Yeah. I gave her a ga- damn good white chapeling. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no I less than she wh- deserved. <laughs> Yes, top ho. Uh, the, um, I think that the one thing that struck me about the Annie Farmer episode was the, uh, you know, considering my sort of particular field of interest, was the enormous amount of press coverage it got. I mean, very long, very detailed articles, mm. sort of rather triumphalist articles. You know, oh, at last we've got a decent, dis- because obviously this was before the, the Hutchinson description in the Kelly murder. Um, mm. Sorry, no, it wasn't. It was after. What am I talking about? Um, but the, uh, November there was, the 22nd, uh, something like that? November the 20th, 20, something? 21st. Uh, yeah. Think it was. All, all, most, most of the accounts appeared on the 22nd. But mm. as, as, and I can't, remember, I can't remember the guy's name, but as he was running down the stairs, the killer was seen by a young chap who was, um, I think he had a greengrocer's cart. And he gave this, he, he actually gave chase and gave this very detailed... Description. Mm. Can you hold on? There's the phone. Sure. Mm. Edit. Hello, folks. Hi. Hello. Sorry, a bit of a, no, not a bad emergency, but I, I've got to sign off now. I've got to. Uh, I've got a quite an important call to take. Okay. Will you be able to come oh, back on? Okay. Do you think? Uh, I hope so. I don't know how long it's going to be, but if I if I can come back on before about uh, well, well, uh, nine nine fifteen nine thirty, then I will. But if not, then my apologies. All right, sounds good, Chris. Okay, Chris. Okay. All right. Anyway, it's lovely. Okay. It's lovely to be back in circulation. It's great to talk to Yay. you. All. Definitely. Nice to see you here. Yeah, take, take care, care Chris. Bye. Bye. Well, as Chris was saying, uh, the amount of press reports that the mm. attack on Annie Farmer garnished um, it it is interesting in that this this uh, it seemed to have been pretty rapidly discounted. But yeah, we know Annie Farmer's name, and and uh, not not um, many people would be familiar with the case of Susan Ward that I described earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet it it seems that it's pretty obvious that she tried to hoax a uh, a river attack. That's how it comes across, isn't it? It's it's there's too many sort of. You know, the, the man run, you know, she she meets a man at, I think it was 7.30, something like that, and takes him back to the satchels. Next thing you know, she's got a cut in the neck or whatever it is, and he's running out and he's having a go at somebody in the street, and she's saying it's Jack the Ripper or whatever it is. It, it doesn't all add up, and she's got coins in her mouth. It's, and also the eyewitness description the eyewitness description she gives is very... It just sounds like it's borrowed from other ones. You know, for example, um, Elizabeth Long, you know, um, dark moustache, shabby genteel. It's all shabby sort of... genteel, yeah. Right. All Chinese whispered from uh, other witness accounts. Yeah. The uh, other thing I have noticed, I don't know if this might be relevant later on. I've been waiting to point this one up. Uh, Annie Farmer was at 19 George Street, uh, which is where Martha Tabram lived, and Rose Milet, we will probably cover in a minute, lived at some point at 18 George Street next door, as did Emma Smith. Right. Uh, all owned by Satchel, Mr. Satchel's lodging house sort of thing. I'm not saying anything, you know, um, spooky about this, but uh, I would not like to have been Mr. Satchel. All yeah. these sort of incidents going on in, in his lodging houses. And Elizabeth Stride lived at 32 Flower and Dean Street, which was owned by Mr. Satchel as well. Things like that. I don't know where there's a... Those I just find it curious. Streets. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think those those two streets were, were particularly notorious sort of grot spots, yeah. weren't they? 
George Street. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, everybody talks about the the you know the victims living in those areas: Dorset Street, Flowerdean Street, George Street, Thrall Street, the other big one. But um, nineteen and eighteen George Street don't half come up a lot. It comes uh, up very black. It comes yes, up very black. Is. The Charles Booth market map. It's, I, I've noticed yeah. that it's the kind of big black splodge. Yeah. Um, sort of encompassing yeah. George Street, and I think I wouldn't like to live there, yeah. or, keep, or keep a DOS house there. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rose Milet's attack um, is a subject of a little bit of controversy, in that um, there was uh, uh, the intervention of Sir Robert Anderson. Yes, yeah. yeah, Anderson and Bond. Yeah. Right. Um, in that um, initial, uh, well, I'll go over the particulars. Basically, Rose Milet was discovered in the early morning hours of the 20th December 1888. And her um, case is um, in the list of Ripper victims at Scotland Yard. Um, Although there were no knife wounds to her throat or her abdomen whatsoever, and she was apparently strangled. Now, the controversy comes in is whether the uh, coroner's inquest, whether she was actually strangled by another person's hand or she choked on her own collar is is what it basically came down to. At first, initially, Dr. Brownfield did the initial report, and he was of the opinion that she was murdered. But then Dr. Robert Anderson disagreed with this finding and sent Wynne Baxter to... Oh no! It was sent. Doctor Thomas said Bond. Bond, right? Um, the surgeon yeah. from A Division to go in there and give his own opinion. And Bond concluded that the death was owing to natural causes, and that she had choked to death uh, while drunk, and that the strangulation marks upon her neck were made by her collar. Um, Coroner Baxter dismissed Bond's evidence and uh, went with Brownfield's initial um, report and presented that to the jury, and the jury returned a verdict of murder by some person or persons unknown. Mm. This case gets discussed on the message boards every once in a while, mainly to Robert Anderson's motives and disagreeing with Dr. Brownfield's opinion and and calling in a second opinion. Uh, some people will allege that, that Robert Anderson did this in order to... Uh, uh, because he he did not want another Whitechapel murder on his hands, so anything mm. he, anything he could do to make it a strangulation by accident, he was going to do it. Oh, does anyone have any thoughts on the death of Rose Milet? Well, it's quite a me- it's a bloody messy one because you, you know you get the um, Mr. Brown Doctor Brownfield's um, report, and then um, because. Robert Anderson happened to be in the country at the time, I assume. Um, he sort of gets involved, and according to him, it says the body lay naturally. And he'd got Dr. Bond to go down there, but Bond's personal assistant, and then the senior police surgeon, I see here, intercepted Anderson's request and went down of their own accord. It was sort of, you know, almost as if they well, were going to do it, you know, we'll, we'll get in there. And they said, willful murder by strangulation. And then it all gets sort of messy after. Well, it's messy already, but it all starts getting... It, it gives you an idea of a feeling that Robert Anderson was sort of involving himself a little bit too much with, you know, the opinions of the medical men. For what reason, it's I also, don't know. But 
It's also used as a stick to beat uh, Dr. Bond with as well. They say, well, mm. he's just a lackey to Robert Anderson who just... Mm. Um, uh, give any opinion just to please his master, which is, you know, I, I tend to think that's nonsense, but it does crop, yeah. crop up a lot on the message boards. Um, in fact, discussion of Rose Milet tends to centre not so much around you know, her as a person or her murder, but uh, it's more the internal politicking amongst police and medical officials. Yeah. That tends to characterise Milet discussions. There's also the, the thing that Alice Graves, who said that she'd seen Rose Milet earlier on in the evening really drunk, and um, apparently there was no evidence of alcohol in her stomach. I think Dr. Brownfield said that the stomach was full of meat and potatoes, which had only mm. recently been eaten. Right. But then he and said it was due to strangulation. Right. And and, um, and Anderson apologists, for lack of a better term, would, would say that, Brown, that that was an error on Brownfield's part. And Brownfield also said that Rose Milet had never given birth but yet mm. her mother came forward and said that she had a daughter. And so there seemed mm. to have been some errors in Brownfield's report, which may have precipitated Robert Anderson coming forward to get a second opinion as well. Mm. But also, Rose Milet was seen in the company of two sailors by more than one person throughout that evening seems like, isn't it true that every time the eyewitness reports uh, see Rose Milet on the night of her murder, she's in the, the company of two sailors? Yes, I remember that. I remember it was two, I've forgotten the sailor detail, but I certainly, I remember it being two men. Um, I don't know if Graves, if Alice Graves was able to say that they were sailors, but uh, that she was in the company of two people. And Charles Ptolemy, infirmary night attendant at Poplar Union, told the court he had seen Rose talking to two sailors in Poplar High Street, mm. not far from Clark's Yard. And this, uh, preceded uh, the sighting by Alice Graves, who spotted Rose Milet outside the George Public House and Commercial Road in the company of two men. Mm. And it's just assumed that they were the same two sailors that she was seen with earlier in the night. Because I guess the murder location was uh, at least somewhat closer to the Docklands than, uh, than, the, than the, the main cluster of canonical murders, um, where I, I assume sailors would be more common. I'm not, I'm not sure. Very likely, I would have thought. Mm. It would have been a quite a few more but um, mm. it doesn't all add up somehow I don't know what anyone else thinks but it's you know as a as a ripper murder whoever you you know whatever victims you think the ripper did for it, it doesn't it doesn't quite add up and, but it is it is odd how would um, one choke upon their own collar <laughs> I mean what, I mean was there a suggestion that maybe she had gotten caught somehow or does anyone know really no, I've, I've never seen anything. I just, I've heard, just seen, you know, she probably was drunk and choked on her own collar. I mean, I have the same question. How do you choke on your own collar? <laughs> I've got a collar on now. I hope I don't choke on it. Loosen it, for God's sake. Is it that easy? Yes. Oh, good. Uh, undo a button. There we go. That's better. But, uh, yeah, I mean, no idea. No idea. Okay, so moving on, Alice McKenzie was attacked at uh, about 1 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, the 17th of July, 1889. In this case, uh, her left carotid artery was cut. There were cuts made from the left to right while the victim was on the ground, and there were abdominal injuries inflicted. 
Here we have uh, a murderer that at least has a throat cut and abdominal injuries, but supposedly the wounds in the neck were smaller than the wounds that were inflicted on any of the Canonical 5 uh, murder victims, and there was no indication of strangulation. And the abdominal cavity was not open to the extent that it would be open in some of the Jack the Ripper victims. Now, I don't know how they would compare this attack to Mary Nichols, who had some of her abdomen protruding, but it's unknown if that was uh, due to them moving her, you know, because that, that wasn't discovered until after they got her back to the mortuary. Oh. But Alice McKenzie has become one of the victims that people would th- think that there there was a higher likelihood that she would have been uh, Jack the Ripper victim than, let, than let's say, an Elizabeth Stride. She was um, the one killed in uh, Castle Alley, by the way. Mm. And well, I I'd certainly agree with that because uh, I mean I mean I'm not. Uh, it's always very difficult to say who are the ones murdered by one individual, but if you go for, just go for the non-canonicals. Apart from perhaps uh, Martha Tabram, Alice McKenzie, to me, is probably the one. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to state my reputation on it or my life on it or whatever. But there's a sense of there's a lot of things with the Alice McKenzie murder that smack of an interruption again, um, in a similar way that people have talked about an interruption with the Polly Nichols murder. Um, I know Polly Nichols had her throat cut on one side at least, down to the spine, and uh, Alice McKenzie's was like a sort of stab that was dragged around to a point. But um, the time frame in which it was done was quite narrow, very similar to the Bucks Row one, because we had policemen having having a snack by the lamp where, you know, where this sort of thing happened, and within minutes of two policemen, I think it was PC Andrews and sergeant badham saying all right mate hello and all that suddenly the whistle blows there's, there's a very sort of tight time frame going on which reminds me of possibly the you know the, the marianne nichols murder and similar similar though lighter mutilations that's just a personal opinion i mean i wouldn't you know hedge my bets on it but it does look quite interesting from that point of view no, I agree. She does tick quite a few boxes, doesn't she? In that regard, yeah. she's definitely one of the more more probable of the uh, of the non canonicals, um, and uh, a lot of the sort of the apparent de escalation of, uh, of, uh, of of mutilation could quite plausibly be explained on the grounds that um, an interruption scenario occurred, mm. um, as it did in, in Nichols. Right, um, and and um, and in this case, in, similar to other Ripper victims, she seemed to have been attacked and then laid on the ground, and her clothes were pushed up in order mm-hmm. for the killer to stab at her abdomen. And location-wise, as well, it's much better than say a, um, a Rose Milet because you know she's right away mm-hmm. from um, she's right on um, Castle Alley, which is close to sort of Wentworth Street. Uh, commercial street, you know, she's she's right, right, sort of bang in the heart of Ripper, formerly formerly Ripper territory. So yeah. um, that's that's definitely a sort of uh, a pro, if you like. And Castle Alley was very. It seems like it was quite well policed, but then that's probably because of what had gone before. But um, Castle Alley was just like your, your classic place, you know. It was uh, it was detached from. Whitechapel High Street just by a tiny little archway and then you went into it and it was known for being a really um, not not a very nice area um, so it is your classic sort of 
ripper area. And it was a silent attack as well. No one, no mm. one heard a scream. And um, there no. were witnesses um, that testified at the inquest who would have been living overlooking the spot where the body was found. Yeah, so that was that was the um, case of Mary Nichols. Yeah, that was the the lady that lived. Um, whose husband was like, in charge of the Whitechapel wash houses. Right. And um, her, their bedroom at the back of the wash houses, and the wash houses are still there, or the, the, the walls are, overlooked the murder site practically, and she'd gone to bed and was reading probably around about the time the murder took place. But yes, as you say, um, she didn't hear anything. Right. Very common thing. <laughs> no one heard a thing. As far as uh, what the uh, actual medical evidence, as far as the wounds were concerned in this case, the uh, coroner stated that the immediate cause of death was loss of blood due to the left carotid artery being severed. Mm. Two jagged cuts in the throat, each four inches long, began on the left side behind the sternomastoid muscle and finished above the larynx. The deeper cut had divided the left carotid artery and penetrated the vertebrae but the larynx and windpipe were undamaged, supposedly meaning that she could have still screamed after her throat was cut. Mm. Yeah. They don't really describe the weapon, but the cut to the abdomen was um, seven inches long and began below the right nipple and went inclined first inward and then outward. On, and then on the right side of the abdomen, there were seven scratches dividing the skin and then seven similar scratches below the large cut and between it and the genitals, mm. um, one of which was pretty deep. There was one across, is it across the Mons Veneris, I right. believe? Is that uh, would anyone like to explain to me what exactly the Mons Veneris is? I think I've got an idea, but it would be nice. Because I've never really known what it is, to be honest with you. <laughs> Maybe you have to edit this bit out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is Pass. <laughs> And and she had bruises on her chest um, also, which is similar to uh, other uh, Whitechapel murder victims. Annie Chapman had bruises on her chest as well, didn't she? Yeah, that's right. So other, other victims had bruising around their sort of the chin, or the, you know, where it suggested that there'd been some form of suffocation, know, uh, strangula- yeah. suffocation, strangulation, yeah, that sort of thing. I now, mean, she's quite a good a good candidate. Obviously, we know it's too late to prove anything or whatever, but out of all of them, it's not a bad one, Alice McKenzie, I don't think. No, I agree. Here we have a conflicting coroner's um, opinions. Dr. Phillips thought that she wasn't a victim of Jack the Ripper, but Dr. Bond thought she was. Uh, Dr. Phillips, because he saw the body before Dr. Bond did, his opinion is given a little bit more weight in discounting her as a Ripper victim. So you have, uh, again, um, similar to the Rose Milet case, uh, a tale of two conflicting doctors' opinions. Yeah. But also, Anderson got involved in that one as well. It was in, I think it was in his um, memoirs, I think. Uh, and Robert Anderson, again, he comes in. He disagreed with the idea that it was a Ripper victim. He said, I am here assuming that the murder of Alice McKenzie on the 17th of July, 1889, was by another hand. I was absent from London when it occurred, as usual, but the Chief Commissioner investigating the case on the spot and it decided it was an ordinary murder and not the work of a sexual maniac. So, um, But Monroe, who was on duty, 
during the S- investigation um, apparently disagreed. I'm inclined to believe is identical with the notorious Jack the Ripper of last year. So yeah, it's not so it's not just the doctors disagreeing. It's you know it's the um, senior chaps at the yard disagreeing and as well. And that's a very interesting instance of Bond and Anderson disagreeing, which mm. rather puts pay to the argument that you know Bond was just uh, uh, Anderson's lackey who sort of. Uh, yeah arrive at his beck and call. Here's an instance where they actually disagree on uh, on whether Mackenzie belongs in the series. Yeah. Uh, Alice Mackenzie yes. is... It, oh, go ahead, John. No, that's all right. Carol. I was going to say Alice Mackenzie is also the, the murder victim. It's kind of interesting because she was accompanied that night by a little blind boy mm. on her pub crawl. George Dixon. Right. I think his name was, yeah. Now, what do we know about George Dixon? Do we know anything? Has, uh, too bad Chris Scott's no longer on. He he probably has looked into George Dixon, but George Dixon was described as a little blind boy who accompanied Alice McKenzie to a few pubs that evening. He may have heard her killer offer to buy her a drink mm. before he was taken back to his lodging house. Mm. I would assume Bl- blind boy is kind of um, a misnomer. It's yeah. a strange. It's a strange one because. Um, when I wrote the the wiki page about George Dixon, there was a sort of he was called George Discon and other things, and he was described as a blind, a blind. I think blind was accepted, but um, I've seen boy in quotes, and apparently he accompanied Alice Mackenzie to a pub near the Cambridge Music Hall on Commercial Street, uh, which isn't there anymore. It was sort of up past Hanbury Street, going towards Shoreditch. And it was said that Dixon heard Alice McKenzie ask a man to buy her a drink. And uh, I, th- I believe it was Sergeant John McCarthy, no relation, uh, made loads of sort of inquiries around various pubs near the music hall, one of which was probably possibly the commercial tavern, perhaps the White Hart and places like that. And uh, no, one, no one could help them. So... Um, but apparently, George Dixon lived at 29 Star Street, Commercial Road, because he was interviewed by Star- uh, Sergeant McCarthy. Oh, really? I thought that mm. um, he was uh, living in the same lodging house as Alice McKenzie. No. Uh, on Gun Street. Uh, yeah, according to Sergeant McCarthy, dated the 24th of July which was attached to another report, um, it revealed success in tracing Dixon. These are my words, um, unfortunately, <laughs> from the, the wiki. But the report I'm quoting is HO3140 Folio 278. And the quote is, Referring to the attached, I beg to report having seen the blind boy George Dixon at 29 Star Street Commercial Road, which I think is where Martha Tabram used to lodge at one point. Um, he says he went with Mrs. Mackenzie into a public house near the Cambridge Music Hall at about ten minutes past seven on Tuesday evening, 16th. He heard Mrs. Mackenzie ask someone if they would stand a drink, and the reply was yes. After a remaining few minutes, Mrs. Mackenzie led him back to 52 Gun Street and left him there. So you might be I'm right on that one, John. The boy Dixon says he would be able to recognise the voice of the person who spoke to Mrs. Mackenzie in the public house. It's interesting you mentioned about him being at um, the lodging house in Gun Street. 
but they found him in 29 Star Street, Commercial Road. So chances are he was probably reasonably itinerant as well. But that's what I have here if, that I managed to find out. And I could not find anyone remotely sort of George Dixon-ish in any sort of census research that I did before I did that page. Whether Chris Scott has ever found anything, I don't know. Now, before we touch on the last two victims, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Francis Coles and Carrie Brown. At the same time as the Whitechapel murders were going on, we had the uh, Thames Torso murders, or the Whitehall murders, in which a series of largely limbless and headless torsos <clears throat> are found in the Thames, one on Pension Street, and then one at the in the um, basement of where they were building the New Scotland Yard building um, that's referred to as the Whitehall Mystery. Do either of you believe that any of these torso <coughs> murders could be connected to the Whitechapel murders? Uh, no. <laughs> Personally. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to doubt it as well. Um, yeah. if, if they'd occurred after the Whitechapel murders, then, then, then you could plausibly argue, yes, that this was another example of escalation. But it was because they appeared to be running concurrently that that um, explanation tends to go out of the window a little bit. Mm. Um, you'd have to explain it away on the ground that he was doing both at the same time, and that's um, just a little harder to swallow. Yeah. Um, only the Whitehall mystery, it took place on the 3rd of October, 1888, but then we have Elizabeth Jackson and the Pynchon Street torso were both in the summer and early fall of 1889. So I guess depending on where you would see the end of the Whitechapel murders, Elizabeth Jackson on the 4th of June, 1889, and the Pynchon Street torso was discovered on September 8th, 1889, could be after the um, Whitechapel murders and point towards escalation. Although, Mary Kelly, if I, I mean, I agree with what, what you're saying in general, Ben, and that's uh, a- after the Miller's Court murder. Um, I don't even think think that the torso murders would would point to a, an escalation per se uh, from from the Mary Kelly murder uh, yeah perhaps not so much perhaps escalation is the wrong word just a kind of alteration um, um, and one that occurred sort of ostensibly mid-series um, I'm thinking of the October one you mentioned um, if it occurred before or afterwards I mean if they all occurred before or afterwards then maybe I'd be more inclined to consider them but uh, did you say one was committed in October? Of uh, one, one was white, discovered at least the Whitehall mystery. Yes, that that was discovered um, in October of 1888. That's it. Yeah, that that would tend to just slightly put a spanner in the works, just for me, in terms of um, attributing it to the same person. Right. Nothing major. <laughs> it's a bit of a case of sort of a gut instinct, I suppose. It's just um, is Elizabeth Jackson's the one that there were various bits of body found in the Thames. Is yes. that the one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sort of, you know, disposing of parts of your victim doesn't quite ring with, you know, if you're going to go for a, a single person murdering various individuals in the East End, it doesn't really quite join up somehow. Um, okay, so I, so I had mentioned that some of the torso murders took place in 1889, and, and then we, we do have a Francis Cole's attack which happened on February 13th, 1891, in Swallow Gardens. And she uh, was apparently thrown to the ground, and her throat was cut. 
but there was an absence of abdominal mutilations. This was a, a kind of um, similar to the Alice McKenzie attack in that the killer might have been disturbed by a police constable. Mm. And in the case of Francis Coles, of course, we have the arrest of a suspect, Thomas Sadler, who had an interesting evening, to say the least, when he was out with Francis Coles that night. But he ended up having all of his charges dropped against him because he was able to to confirm his alibi. But for a while there, I mean, the days after the arrest of Thomas Sadler, um, the press uh, and the public pretty much believed that they had caught the Ripper. What would anyone like to say about the murder of Francis Coles? Well, again, that would be a possible Ripper murder, um, except in as much as Sadler is remained such a compelling suspect. Um, in my view, I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, he's still very much um, in the frame. Um, unless I'm not mistaken, there are at least eyewitness descriptions that place him in the vicinity of Royal Mint Street, um, mm. intoxicated apparently, um, at around the time, or, or near enough the time, that um, uh, Coles would have been murdered. So um, he's very difficult to rule out as, as a compelling suspect in her murder. Another thing is, like when I, when I did the wiki stuff for this, I just could not believe the amount of witnesses that were there. It was probably the most well-chronicled murder out of the Whitechapel series in terms of witnesses. There, there's there's dozens of them. Um, whether it's you know people who 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 are running a Wentworth Street coffee shop. Uh, Shuttleworths or whatever it is, or just a bunch of people walking past, because it seems like um, Sadler was incredibly conspicuous by the fact that he, I think he got beaten up about three times that evening. Um, I think at least two two of them was after um, Francis Coles had gone back to the lodging house. And it's, it's a very well documented evening. And if you read um, James Thomas... Sadler's um, statement he gives quite a good account of his movements and all the rest of it and then it all gets very messy at the end and I believe he was last sort of found pretty beaten up and totally plastered in Royal Mint Street as you say Ben and uh, but later on after he was sort of he was, I don't think he was actually acquitted I just think the um, because of certain witnesses um, the, the case never really you know took took full form um he went eventually went back to his old his, his wife and uh he was sort of being sur- surveyed by the police up until about 1893 um where he was involved in quite a lot of disturbances um where they'd moved i think it was camberwell i think and um and he'd met up with his wife a couple of times after Sort of, or before the Francis Cole murder, saying, "Would you like to come and see where the women, woman was murdered?" and things like that. So there's all sorts of strange behaviour on his behalf. And, and to be quite frank with you, if they had antisocial behaviour orders in those days, he probably would have got one because he sounds like a bit of a mm. a, a dodgy guitar. Yes, as they say. But um, and one of the reasons why maybe he was. Um discharged from court and, and um, not held responsible for murdering Francis Coles was that he was able to prove his alibi um, on the nights of the Nichols, Chapman, Stride, and Eddowes murders. Hmm. Do, we, do we think that has, I mean, do, 
did the press and the police kind of both want to connect Francis Cole's murder with the Whitechapel murder series? And because uh, Sadler can could prove that he was on ship at the time of four of the five C5 victims, uh, then the weight against him in murdering Francis Cole's got lifted off? Or... <laughs> It could be, or it could be something uh, even more mundane than that, just that they simply lacked evidence. Um, you know, I mean, I often refer to the case of, uh, you know, Gary Ridgway, just by way of illustration. You know, he was he was suspected, but uh, they had to release him, not because they didn't have an inkling that he made the murderer, but because uh, they simply lacked the evidence. And that might have occurred uh, in the Sadler case um, with regard to the murder of Francis Coles. They may have just simply released him, not because they've proven anything major or compelling, such as alibis for earlier murders, but rather they just lack the evidence, um, which is why they, they, they had to resort to sort of things like um, surveillance and, um, and, and sort of monitoring, uh, which is presumably how they found out about um, the fact that he connected up with his wife later and, uh, and this and that. Um, it is a little unique in, in, um, in supposed Ripper victims in that, that we do have this suspect and that if he is the murderer of Francis Coles, then he certainly isn't the Whitechapel murderer. Um, so her, her, um, her murderer can't be attributed uh, to Jack mm. the Ripper. But if he's, if he's not the murderer, then I guess that leaves open the question of her being a victim of Jack the Ripper. Which is a little bit more than we have to go on with with any of the other victims, I think. Well, I think um, I don't think there's any um, reasonable grounds to say that James Thomas Sadler was Jack the Ripper, because I mean, I've got his uh, discharge things here in front of me um, on on the ships, and yeah, like you say, he he wasn't there for several of them, you know. Right. Um, whether whether he was the murder of Catherine Eddowes or not. Oh, sorry, not Catherine Eddowes. <laughs> Francis Coles or not um, is hard to say, but um, I believe it was the, the witness testimony of uh, Jumbo Friday and his friends who said they'd seen Francis Coles with a man, but it wasn't him. Right. I think which was, it was, I think it was that that really sort of got him off the hook, I think. I mean... They considered him a compelling enough suspect to have, um, I think it must have been, Joseph Lavender um, look him over in a sort of witness ID parade. Yes, that's uh, right, yeah. That raises a few questions of its own, um, considering that um, the man described was kind of 30 and, uh, you know, clean-shaven as opposed to sort of uh, uh, <clears throat> a 55-year-old, whatever he was, Sadler, who was bearded and sort of, uh, you know, obviously he wouldn't have been the man um, described. But... Uh, yeah they were sort of doing a bit of a sort of just-in-case scenario. Mm. But they obviously considered him fairly compelling at one point. He was obviously a dangerous chap, I think, Mm, judging by what what happened involving his wife and the lodger that they had in their sort of shop in Camberwell or wherever it was. The the, the lodger was constantly going to the police saying, he's bonkers, he's mad, you know, I think he's going to kill her, and things like that. And they kept going back and warning him and things like this. So... He was not um, the most compass mentis individual, but um, and may well have been, you know, the murderer of Francis Coles. But he said, I don't, I can't believe he was, you know, the Ripper. Now, aside from the murders um, that occurred in the East End of London in the late 1880s and early 1890s, we do have a murder of a prostitute in New York City 
which has uh, become somewhat notorious in being linked to Jack the Ripper, and that's the, uh, the murder of Carrie Brown, which occurred on the 23rd of April, 1891, in the East River Hotel in Manhattan. Many um, Ripper authors, who are suspect-based Ripper authors, in particular are Michael Gordon and Charles Van Onselen. I believe he uh, attaches Joseph Liss to the murder of Carrie Brown. Um, do, do point to Carrie Brown's murder as um, the Ripper uh, traveling to the United States. It, it would give an easy uh, explanation for the cessation of the murders in the UK to have similar quote-unquote murder of a prostitute in New York City months later. So in the case of Carrie Brown, um, she was an uh, older prostitute who, um, who checked into a hotel on the night of her murder with a client of hers who was described variously as blonde or light, light-haired, but with a sharp nose, heavy mustache, about 32 years old. And the following day, her body was found. She had several abdominal injuries. Uh, she had been strangled and stabbed, and her throat was cut as well. There was a suspect arrested for the murder of Carrie Brown, Amir Ben Ali, and he served quite a number of years in prison before uh, being released um, after a pardon. Like I said, Carrie Brown's murder uh, ki- kind of is, is um, considered a non-C5 murder, even though mm-hmm. it took place on a, a whole other continent. Um, does anyone have any uh, opinions on whether Carrie Brown should even be considered as, as a, a victim of Jack the Ripper? Can I, there's one thing I, I can't remember. Was, was she considered a possible victim of tumble tea? I might be wrong here, but um, when, when he fled to, to the States. Um, I, that sounds about right. Um, I, I can't remember whether it was a... It was in, in the Evans Ganey book, whether it was sort of mooted that it's quite possible that because he went over, you know, to well, New York that may initially. have been the case, but, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but Tumble Tea was robbed of possessions, of, if not maybe even a briefcase in New Orleans, uh-huh. I think, within a few days of the Carrie Brown murder. And uh-huh. the press reported that he... Um, had been waiting there, had hired attorneys, and and was trying to reclaim possessions that had been stolen from him. So, right. so whether or not Stuart Evans, um, in in his book, uh, tried to connect uh, Tumble Tea to the crimes of Carrie Brown, I don't remember. But I, but I, I'm pretty, nah. I'm pretty certain that Tumble Tea had an alibi. If I, I'm just going off the top of my head, yeah, um, same here. Because I wouldn't want to sort of say, you know. Stuart Evans and Paul Ganey said that. It's just, it just something in my head there for some reason. I didn't know whether it was had been said or not. But yeah, um, but yeah, whether whether or not Stuart Evans uh, brought up the Kerry Brown murder, um, I'm 99.9% certain that Tumble Tea was dealing Somewhere with some else. kind of theft at yeah. a hotel um, mm-hmm. during those dates. So yeah. he, he would be excluded. Um, ben, ben, do you have anything to comment on that, or on Carrie Brown in particular? Um, I, I have to consign her to the probably not pile um, on balance. Um, first, I mean, it, it, it's often a, just a slight myth that um, serial killers are notorious travellers. You know, once they get bored of a certain area, they sort of zoom off to sort of um, a far-flung location and resume ripping activities anew. I mean, by and large, that that tends not to happen. 
um, at least not 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 on a sort of transatlantic scale. Very often. Mm. And also, I, I'd have to say, with the Carrie Brown murder, we'd be definitely dealing with a conspicuous sort of the opposite of an, ex, um, an escalation. Um, when you consider what uh, Jack the Ripper, I'm assuming he killed Kelly, was capable of um, once in the confines of a room, um, my speculation there would be he'd do something very similar to that when once again found within the confines of a hotel room as opposed to being on the streets. Um, so for that reason, I'd probably um, um, give her a tentative thumbs down. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, before we uh, call this a podcast, one of the victims that we... I think we mentioned uh, Martha Tabern in passing on the first uh, part of this podcast on the part one of the non-C5 victims, but we didn't really cover her in any detail because she has had yeah. a podcast of, of her own. But, um, but John, you had uh, something to say about how you believe Martha Tabern may, may fit into all this. Well, no, it's not. It's not so much that, but um, I know we sort of had a very brief mention of it in the last podcast. But um, I was just looking at the sort of the injuries that had occurred on Martha Tabram and things like that. And there was the thirty-nine injuries, and one of them was a dagger or a bayonet went through the breastbone. All the others were done with. Uh, a pen knife, but one of the injuries went through the heart, which would have been apparently enough to have killed her anyway. But nobody during that attack, and George Yard Buildings had 48 rooms in it, as I've discovered, and no one heard any screams or anything. There was one report very early on the previous evening. Um, where they said they someone heard the shout of murder, but it seemed to be out in the street rather than in the buildings. So, and it has been said that when Martha Tabron was being stabbed, she was probably uh, conscious when it was happening. On her death certificate, it does not say what the cause of death is. It just says murder by person or persons unknown. All the others have got things like... Um, you know, severance of left carotid artery, hemorrhaging due to this, and, you know, the ripping of this and the cutting of that. And I've never been able to find anywhere what, what they believe the actual cause of death was. And if so, why was there no cry if it wasn't something that happened before she had been stabbed? Do you see what I'm saying? It's a sort of an, an odd, odd scenario here. Um, yeah, some people suggest that, and, and they've suggested this of other Ripper victims, that maybe they had been sleeping at the time that they were attacked. Now, right. now Tavern, of course, would have probably woken up if um, she was being stabbed by a penknife um, yeah. and screamed. Um, but, um, yeah, that is interesting. That, that <coughs> and, and that goes for a lot of the other murders. Mm. That no, no one seems to hear a sound. And well, there's also the, the possibility of suffocation in uh, in, in Tabram's case. I mean, there, I don't think there's been anything definitive on that. I mean, some people say, uh, yes, in all likelihood, the bruises, the kind of um, the swollen nature of her face um, suggests suffocation or strangulation. Other people say, well, she just was fleshy and that's what she looked like normally. Um, personally, I, I wouldn't rule out a, a suffocation, strangulation um, mm. theory. Um, I've also like, I've also heard somebody mention um, that it's possible that she had her head banged against the wall, but I'm sure they would have oh, yeah. found some form of abrasion 
at the back during the post mortem, but which I've never seen. In other uh, words, knock they, her out. By... Didn't they find something like an effusion of blood below the scalp? Um, that that rings a bell. That did, I'm that sure that today. was Cameron. Yeah. Effusion of yeah. blood, but I've got that phrase kind of lodged in my memory, and I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure it's tabloid. Um, that rings rings a bell, and I've been looking for it mm. today, but I, I can't find this description, which, yeah, like you say, would, would suggest whether it's the floor or the wall or whatever. Yeah. Her that, head, that would tell you as well. Basically, she knocked out, and then, and then, it, then it would all happen, you know, which would That's answer my question. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And Francis Coles um, was discovered with a pretty severe uh, injury to the back of her head as well. Um, ah, is that the one we're thinking of? No, I'm pretty I, sure the one I'm thinking of. I don't know is. that it, it, that they described it exactly as an effusion of blood. I think Ben's right in that that was tabrum. Right. But, um, and, and, I, and I don't think that they that they exactly said that that may may have knocked out Francis Coles, but it, mm. they used that as an indication of the force with which she was thrown to the ground, uh-huh. um, being that she hit her head. Um, not not like a deliberate um, whacking of her head to knock her out, but I guess yeah. one would never know, you know, what if it if it was. Um, well, I think it, it was an wasn't, intentional injury to the back of her head by her attacker. Or not. Yeah. Wasn't Frances Cole still, I believe, was she, was she not still conscious when she was discovered? Isn't that story about one of her eyes opening up when she was yes. found? Yes, yes, yes. Almost as if she was awake at least. You know, obviously not sort of in any any sort of great state, but the eye popped open. You know, as as she was prodded. Right, that's why Thompson, Thompson um, couldn't um, chase the sounds of the, the fleeing attacker that he had heard. Yeah. Because he, he noticed right, yeah. that she was still alive, so he couldn't leave her side. That's right, yeah. Right. Sorry, gents, I, I've just found the reference um, from the East London Advertiser from the 11th of August, 1888, with reference mm-hmm. to the Tabra murder. And the extract says he, um, the doctor in question, had since made a post-mortem examination and on opening the head found there was an effusion of blood between the scalp and the bone. Ah, that's the one. But it definitely yeah. is, definitely is tabrum. Right. Uh, and yes, I don't see why, why that w- wouldn't point towards a possible you know, injury to the head. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did, did they... Sorry, did go ahead, did they say what that indicated? I mean, no. They just went on to say next: uh, the mm. brain was pale, pale but healthy. Um, then they go on to lungs and um, all the rest of it. Mm. Um, they didn't you know, sort that, of. That, um, go on, shoot, John. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it it <laughs> sorry, does sort of suggest that they might. She, well, the fact that she was probably, possibly unconscious when it took place. Otherwise, I'm sure there would have been quite a lot of. Activity or screaming or something like that around about oh, that yes. time. Now, none of the other victims um, besides Tabram and Francis Coles have had um, any kind of head injury like that, have they? Mm. Not that I know of. No, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think the, the general idea is that, that most of them were sort of suffocated beforehand, rendering them unconscious, and then. Then he was 
free to do or whoever it was was free to do what they wanted to do. Right. Okay, so uh, this will about wrap it up. Does anyone have anything else to add on any of the non-C5 victims that we've discussed today? No. No, I'm I'm fine. That's my lot. Yep. (laughs) All right. Well, Well, thanks everybody for being on. And that was Rippercast, episode 47, The Non-Canonical Victims, part 2. I'd like to thank Chris Scott, John Bennett, and Ben Holm for being guests on this episode. We are a podcast that is hosted by the website www.casebook.org and also available in the iTunes Music Store's Society and Culture History section of their podcasts, key search word being Rippercast or Jack the Ripper. In the next week or two, I'll be uploading a year-end review show. And in the beginning part of January, we'll be hosting a Jack the Ripper fiction show. And from then on, in 2010, we'll be uploading a Rippercast on a monthly basis. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.